One of the advantages of having two services is now I learn how far I'm going to preach based on the first service. Um, I had intended to get through Exodus chapter 13 this morning, but now I know we won't get that far. Uh, We'll be in Exodus 11 and most of chapter 12, but we won't break through into chapter 13. Uh, But to begin, I would like to read to you from the New Testament uh, two passages from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11. Of course, welcome to turn there. First Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 1 Corinthians 11. 23 through 26, the passage that we read every communion. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we bow ourselves before you, God of heaven and earth, the Almighty. Lord, you've spoken to us through your word. It's our intention now to listen to you and what you speak to us from your word. Lord, we need your help even now. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and wills to be following wherever you would have us go. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We will be back in Exodus chapter 11. I read those passages to you because they're pertinent to what Exodus 11, 12, and really 13 are teaching us. The book of Exodus has been showing us week after week these epic events that happened thousands of years ago in Egypt, the events that lead to the expulsion of Israel from Egypt and eventually leads to their visit into the promised land. Uh, These stories are historically oriented. They tell us historical details. And of course, in history, there are different branches of history. You have American history, you have European history, uh, you have Roman history, you could go into Japanese history, Chinese history, so on. You could think of the book of Exodus, as Israelite history. But probably better 
is to think of it as redemptive history. That's the gem of all historical disciplines, redemptive history. Not to say that it lacks historical details or it lacks actual events of history. It's to say that there is a plan that God has put into a place that he is enacting in order to bring about the redemption of his people. That's redemptive history. It's seeing how God has acted in history to redeem his people. This is the best discipline of history because it's the one that is most pertinent to us and is, in fact, all other historical disciplines really fold into that one if you understand them correctly. Redemption is needed because humanity has fallen into sin. You could say, as Scripture does, that we are slaves to sin. And so we need to be redeemed from that. For Israel, they needed to be redeemed from slavery to Egypt. They had endured the oppression of that power for over 400 years. They needed to be let go, sent out. They needed to be redeemed, bought back from the state of slavery. And while there is a physical slavery that they needed to be let go from, the true understanding of the Scriptures is that this is leading us to understand that there is a kind of slavery that we all need to be let go from. Certainly Israel had a real slavery, just as we have a real slavery to sin. And this exodus foreshadows for us the redemption that is brought to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. For Israel, the story of Exodus is their Independence Day. These chapters teach us about the day that they were set free, their July 4th, a nation that is united by a common ancestry that had been enslaved are now receiving their freedom through the power of God setting them free. But we really see something more than just a historical setting because we see a sovereign God who is bringing about that freedom through his power and through his judgment. He's working this redemption. And of course, this is preparing us for the greatest act of redemption, the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross. That event, that event of Christ on the cross is the event of events. It is the moment of moments. It is the accomplishment of accomplishments. For in that moment, the Son of God, who is the Lamb of God, was slain to redeem the people of God from the wrath of God. This is the work that Christ accomplished on the cross. And we might think that for Israel as they're being set free from their bondage, that they're re- really being spared the wrath of Pharaoh. But as we unfold these events of the Passover night, the plague of the firstborn, when God goes in and destroys the firstborn of Egypt, we realize that not only did Israel need to be spared from Pharaoh's enslavement, they also need to be spared from the judgment of God. That's the real exodus that they experience. A deliverance from the plague that God brought. They were spared by the blood of a lamb. 
And so those passages from 1 Corinthians help us to understand that the Passover that we'll read about in Exodus 11, 12, and 13 is leading us to understand that the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ himself, has been sacrificed. And he has delivered us from the wrath of God. We need to remember these things. Israel needed to remember that they were slaves in Egypt who had been set free by the power of God. Now you might think, well, that should be a pretty easy thing to remember. Knowing that all of these plagues happened, knowing that there's this great deliverance that God brings the destruction of the firstborn over Egypt, that they're spared on that night. You think, how could you forget something like that? How can you forget something so monumental, so significant to your whole history? How do you forget that? Well, if you know anything about your own mind and how forgetful you can be, maybe you can understand how easy it is to forget something of very great importance. You ever forgotten your anniversary date? Hope not. Wife's birthday? Hope not. February 14th? That one can be left out. We're forgetful people. But how do you forget the event of events? How do you forget the death of the Son of God on the cross? We can't forget that. Exodus eleven twelve is written for the Israelites to remember the great deliverance that God brings them. It is meant to be a memorial to them, and it puts something into their culture that helps them remember the great deliverance God gives them, so they won't forget it. But it indicts us, in a sense, because it shows just how forgetful we can be. And if you wonder, how can you forget something as monumental as the cross of Christ? Well, unfortunately, that's pretty easy to do. And we start getting our eyes fixed on the things right in front of us. It's easy to forget the great payment God has made for us at the cross 2,000 years ago. In fact, whole denominations have forgotten the cross. They may have the emblem of the cross up in their churches, but the cross isn't preached there. The substitution of Jesus Christ for sinners, having endured the wrath of God and the punishment for sins, having shed his blood so sinners can be forgiven and redeemed and reconciled with God is no longer preached The buildings are empty of the gospel. And so we have to take heed lest we forget the significance of God's deliverance. And so I find here in Exodus 11 and 12 an exhortation to us to remember, to remember the great things of the Lord. There's a lot of material here. I haven't even read one verse from Exodus yet. We have a lot to go through. We'll read a section of Scripture here. I'll try to give you a heading to that section, make a few comments on it, and address maybe one or two key verses, and then we'll move on. The whole goal is that we remember. So let me give you first heading. We need to remember that God makes the ultimate distinction for you between life and death. Remember that God makes the ultimate distinction for you between life and death. I'll read Exodus 11, verses 4 through 10. So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, 
About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel." And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. And after that I will go out. And he went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. This is Moses speaking to Pharaoh about the final plague. There have been nine that have preceded this. And here comes the tenth and the worst. This is the one that sees Israel finally let go and leaving Egypt. It is so horrible that it's described that on that night when the Lord passes through and takes the firstborn from every household in Egypt, there will never have been a cry of grief like there will be in Egypt that night. There's been nothing like this in Egypt. It will be so horrific that it will afflict both Pharaoh and his household and the slave girl in her household. This has been expected throughout the book of Exodus so far. Exodus chapter 4, before Moses even goes back to Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in Exodus 4, 21, saying, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. God had made plain what he was going to bring upon Egypt because God viewed Israel as his firstborn. It was his chief people, the people that he had set his love on. And if Egypt was not willing to treat them with any regard, then God was going to take Egypt's firstborn. And so that's what happens. I think the key verse from this section is verse 6. It describes the great cry that will come. And then verse 7. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. For as great as the suffering Egypt was going to experience that night, Israel will have peace. So much peace that not even a dog will be heard barking among them. It's hard to go through a neighborhood without hearing a dog bark. But for Israel... There will be a distinction upon them, not even a dog growling. 
the reason for the distinction is one group of people will experience God's judgment and one group of people will be spared God's judgment. That's the distinction that matters. No other distinction really matters in this life. The distinction is, will you experience God's judgment or will you not experience His judgment? If you experience His judgment, then there will be grief, sorrow, and agony that is horrific to be described. But if you are passed over and you do not experience God's judgment, then there is peace with God. Jesus says in John 3.18, whoever believes in Him, referring to Christ, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That's the distinction right now. Those who have put their faith in Christ and those who haven't. And those who haven't are condemned already. But for those who have, you are not condemned. The great distinction is whether you have judgment or salvation, whether you'll be delivered or damned. That's the distinction. We need to remember that God makes the ultimate distinction for you between life and death. We also need to remember that the new beginning for God's people comes with the blood of the Lamb. We need to remember that the new beginning that comes for God's people comes with the blood of the Lamb. Let me read for you Exodus 12, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. If you mark your Bibles, underline or highlight, this would be a passage to star, highlight, underline. It's one of the most important passages in the Old Testament because it lays out what is going to be one of the most important observances for the Israelites in the Old Testament, the Passover feast. 
It really explains why Israel was spared. We need to understand what's happening. Israel is now just given instructions about what to do with this lamb. They're commanded to take a lamb on the 10th of the month, keep it until the 14th, and you've got to make sure it's proportioned out rightly so there's not too much or too little per family. Make sure it's all consumed, otherwise you burn the rest of it in the morning. You kill it at twilight, take some of its blood, paint it over the doorposts, and then roast it whole over fire. Not raw, not boiled, whole over fire. This is going to provide a sign. In other plagues, there's a distinction that's made between Israel and Egypt. In the plague of darkness, for example, Egypt experiences pitch black darkness. Israel, on the other hand, has light. In that plague, it's not because Israel was told to trim the wicks of their lamps, to get candles ready. It's just simply because God sends darkness on Egypt and on Israel he sends light. The distinction is made completely at God's prerogative and by his power. But now there's a bit of a caveat in the distinction that's made. As the Lord is going to pass through Egypt that night, and he looks at the doors, it says in verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and very key statement, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. This time, the way we would understand this is as God passes through Egypt, if there is no blood on the door, then there will be death in that house. If there's blood on the door, then there will be a sparing of the firstborn. It's when he sees the blood that he makes the distinction. In this case, it's not just because they're of Jewish roots, It's because there has been a lamb that has been sacrificed and the blood is painted on the door. And God sees that and he will pass over them. This is so significant for Israel that it says in verse 2 that this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. For Israel, this is a new beginning. This is the start of their new year. The remembrance of God delivering them out of Egypt is what marks their new year. I haven't found very many people who who find that New Year's Day is like their most favorite holiday of the year. When I ask ask people, what did you do on New Year's Day? And they kind of look at me like, I'm supposed to do something? Maybe you have some get-togethers. Maybe you get together with family and you have a little, um, a little bit of a celebration. But it's just not that big of a deal. It's somewhat of an arbitrary day where we mark a new year. And maybe there's some uh, anticipation of the newness of the year. You can make some goals and plans for the new year. But overall, it's not that big of a deal. It's somewhat of an arbitrary marker. But for Israel, this is not an arbitrary marker of a new beginning for them. 
their new year and their calendar is going to be marked by the deliverance God gives them in bringing them out of Egypt. I might ask you, how do you feel about New Year's Day? And you could kind of be blasé about it. But I suspect if I ask you about Christmas, about Good Friday, about Resurrection Sunday, you'd say, those are the days that I remember my Lord coming into the world. That's the day that I remember my Lord going to the cross and dying for me. That's the day that I remember Jesus rising from the dead in victory for me. They are much more significant because your whole life is wrapped up in what was accomplished and is remembered on those days. You can do away with January 1st. But we remember what Christ did for us at the cross. I could ask you, how do you feel about Sundays? And you say, well, that's the day that I get together with my church family because on the first day of the week, Christ has risen. I could ask you about Communion Sundays. And you say, well, that's the day that I remember Jesus went to the cross. I love that day. I love remembering what Christ has done. That's significant. God puts markers in our lives that are significant so we remember what he has done for us. Maybe even more personal for you is that day when you came to faith in Jesus Christ. You might have it marked on your calendar as my new birthday. I don't know the day that I was saved. I don't know when I came to Christ, but I remember that time in life where my life changed and the glory of Christ was opened up to me. And I remember what he has done for me. Israel, their whole calendar was marked by what God did for them in sparing them his judgment. We remember what Christ has done for us in sparing us God's judgment. We are to remember that the new beginning comes from the blood of the Lamb. We're also to remember that the new beginning God brings is to be remembered forever. The new beginning that God brings is to be remembered forever. Exodus 12 Verses 14 through 20 says, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places you shall eat unleavened bread." The Lord gives to Israel this feast of unleavened bread that will help them to remember for generations to come what he did in bringing the people out of Egypt. The new beginning God brings is to be remembered forever. 
One of the remarkable elements of this is that this feast is commanded for Israel to keep before the thing that it celebrates has happened. Usually, you institute some sort of a memorial after you've done the thing that you're commemorating, not before. There's a legendary story of Babe Ruth in the 1932 World Series, Game 3 against the Cubs. He's got two strikes against him, and supposedly he calls his shot. He points to the outfield and says to the pitcher that he's going to hit a home run on the next pitch. It's a little bit of a legendary thing, probably a little mythical in a sense. He probably didn't call a shot, but just bear with me and accept that he called a shot. Think about the arrogance of that, that he would stand in front of the pitcher before the pitch has even come and tell him, I'm going to hit a home run on this next pitch. Or think for a moment, I'm not familiar with the U.S. founding fathers doing this, but I'm not aware of any of them who said on July 1st, 1776, you know what, for the generations to come, for this new nation that's going to be formed, they should have celebrations with fireworks and feasting and lots of drinking, and I'm not aware of any of them doing that. But our God, before he brings one foot out of Egypt, already tells Israel, you're going to remember this day forever with a memorial feast. That's our God, and that's his glory, that he tells the end from the beginning. Isaiah 46, verse 8 says, Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember former, the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Moses kept on telling Pharaoh to let the Israelites go so that they could hold a feast to Yahweh in the wilderness. Pharaoh kept denying it. Little did Pharaoh know that the feast would come at his expense and the expense of his firstborn son because this whole feast will be remembering that God killed the Egyptian firstborn sons in order to spare his firstborn Israel. And they are to remember this forever. Verse 17 says that you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. We need to persistently remember the new beginning God has given us. We cannot forget this. I find it also remarkable that Jesus, before he was betrayed, before he was tried, before he was hung on a cross, took the disciples in the upper room and transformed this Passover feast into his memorial supper that would remember what he was going to do on the cross. And he told his disciples before he went to the cross to do this in remembrance of me.
Who can do that except for the Son of God to institute a feast that would remember what he was going to do before he did it? We are to perpetually have ourselves reminded of what God has done for us in Christ and this new beginning he gives us through Christ. We're also to remember that God has spared us. We must remember that God has spared us. Exodus 12, verse 21 through 28. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the blood will pass through, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the, Lord's, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed down, bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Back to instructions about what's to happen on that Passover night. Moses is telling the leaders of Israel what to do with the blood and with the lamb. He tells them that once that blood is on the doorpost, they need to stay inside the house. The Lord is going to pass over, and when he sees the blood, he'll say to the destroyer not to enter. But with this, there's going to be a bit of a Q&A that happens. Kids are going to wonder, what is going on? What's happening? And when they ask that, there's an answer that is to be given in verse 27. It is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, Here's why. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And this was to go on from generation to generation as the Israelite children are taught what God did on that night. He spared us. He spared us. That's what we remember Isn't that our doctrine, that we've been spared? And isn't it our doctrine that we've been spared because the Lamb has been slain? Isaiah 53.10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. Ephesians 5.2 describes Christ as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Hebrews 10.12 says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And again, that passage from 1 Corinthians 5, 7, says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. 
We've been spared the judgment of God because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed for us. Tell your kids that. Tell your grandkids that. And don't stop telling them. We keep on reminding ourselves and others of what has happened. We've been spared. We also need to remember that the Lord will always win and it won't even be close. Exodus 12, 29 through 32. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. This is what we've been waiting for. Finally, it comes to this point where it seems like Pharaoh yields. Israel has the green light to go. And as Pharaoh notes in this, he finally concedes, as you have said. He doesn't change the terms. He acknowledges that they can go and do what Moses has been saying the whole time. But this has come after severe stubbornness from Pharaoh. Resistance after resistance. Plague after plague has come and Pharaoh just doubles down. And yet throughout this whole battle, Pharaoh never gets any points on the board. He's got a big fat zero on the scoreboard. No touchdown, no goals, no home runs, nothing. He hasn't won one point against Yahweh. And in the end, the Lord clearly wins and has devastated Egypt with this horrific plague in the death of the firstborn. There is no advantage at all in fighting against God because he always wins and he never loses and it won't even be close in the end. Remember, he always wins. Remember that the Lord always keeps his word Remember, the Lord always keeps his word. Verse 33, The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and for clothing, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, 
All the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. This is it. This is what we've been waiting for. The exodus happens. 600,000 men, plus women and children, plus the cattle, finally get to leave Egypt. Not only do they leave, but they leave big, plundering the Egyptians. I think the key verse to this is verse 40. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. That's a long time. But waiting did not diminish one bit of the potency of God's word. Hundreds of years before this happened, Genesis 15, verse 13, the Lord spoke to Abram and said, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. 430 years is a long time. But waiting that long did not diminish one bit of the potency of God's word. It happened just as he said it would happen. The Israelites... Waiting, waiting, waiting. I feel like as a church, we've been waiting for weeks going through this book of Exodus, and it feels like a long time. We have a hard time waiting, even a day for our Amazon order to come. And they had to wait 430 years. Waiting, waiting. This is never going to end. And waiting. And then in one night, they're thrust out. All of them. So sudden is the fulfillment of God's word that they don't even have time to leaven their bread. They have to leave without it. And they can just bake unleavened cakes Waiting, and waiting, and waiting. And then suddenly, God's word is fulfilled in totality. Sure, many of you know something about waiting. I'm not talking about little waiting. Not waiting in the grocery store. Not waiting at the bank. Not waiting for your order to come in the mail. Talking about real waiting, through real suffering, through real broken things in your life. And you're waiting, and you're waiting, and you're waiting, and it feels like 430 years. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment 
in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. In a moment, you won't even have time to leaven your bread. All that you're waiting for, all the redemption that you need, in a moment, keep waiting. Keep waiting through death. Because there will be that moment when the trumpet blasts and all is made right before you can even blink. So brothers and sisters, keep waiting. And as you wait, keep remembering what God has done for you in Christ. Remember and wait. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to help us with that. Admittedly, the waiting is hard and the remembering is hard. We're not really good at either of those. Father, we get so caught up with here and now. Sorry for that. You've given us every reason to trust you, to believe you, to wait. Your word is going to be fulfilled. Oh Lord, we know that. We know that your word has been fulfilled. You've done so much in Christ already. Lord, help us to remember what you've done so that it helps us to wait. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are going through deep suffering, even in this room, and waiting for the redemption of their bodies, waiting for Christ. Lord, help them to wait. Strengthen them to wait. Help them to remember, too, all of the goodness that you've already poured out on them with the forgiveness of sins, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the gift of fellowship. Oh Lord, help them. Strengthen us all, Lord, to run this race together, remembering and waiting. We thank you for your goodness to us in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.